<laughs> very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. I am Sean Richards, hosting or co-hosting today with Bo Olette. It will be just the two of us in our traditional Halloween garb, or if you're listening on radio, nothing's changed. Uh, of course, we're <laughs> recording this at the time of October 31st, known to some as Reformation Day, known to others as, well... Tuesday. But if you'd like to join us with your questions live, note that we will be live streaming on YouTube, Facebook, and our website, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, if you want to do so directly. If you're listening to us on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, you will, of course, be listening to us one day delayed, but you can still take advantage of our resources. And of course, we will be listing those regularly on the screen. As stated, if you want to send us your questions via email, you can do so at questionsforhope at gmail.com, questions, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com. And note that if you do so through that venue, we'll be able to keep them all organized as far as what questions we have and haven't answered. Won't get lost in the clutter. We can have a nice little uh, compilation and organization, if you will, of all that that will involve. Uh, note as well, if you want to join us on Facebook, you can do so at CCF uh, Tucson, <laughs> Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you give us a like there, you will be notified when we are going live, as well as other devotions hosted by theirs truly. And you can also uh, send us your questions through the message app there as well. If you would like to join us on YouTube, we are live streaming there at reason for hope that's a reason for hope and if you subscribe to us there you'll be given the same perks and notifications of when we're going live if you'd like to join us on our website perhaps not using social media but still on the internet calvary c-a-l-v-a-r-y christianfellowship.com excuse me will be where we're at and uh, hopefully that will be a blessing to you as the topic of the broadcast is of course to answer your Bible questions. As long as your questions are about the Bible, whether it's matters of biblical prophecy, relevance to your life, clarification on certain passages in Scripture, or even uh, clarifications of objections to the Christian faith, maybe even other world religions, a lot going on in the world regarding Islam and atheism right now. You perhaps encountered a cultist, someone who claims to be a Christian but denies some of its core teachings. We'll be happy to clarify those things for you as well. Just know that we're going to keep our answers from the Bible and hopefully stay in the Bible. So if your question's about that and it's sincere, we'll be happy to address those things with you on the broadcast for the next hour. And note as well, if you want to, of course, uh, get some prayer support, we do that too. So with that said, uh, Bo, since you're uh, not always on the broadcast, would yeah. you like to do the honor of starting us off in a word yes, of prayer? Yes, absolutely, on this Reformation Day. Father, we thank you so much for your good grace to us, Father. Your unfailing love is amazing. And as we read in the Psalms, uh, Lord, you, you, you never stop thinking of us. And we thank you so much for that, that you are um, always in our life. Uh, we are on your mind, and you live to intercede for us, Lord. We, we praise you, Jesus, for that wonderful intercessory work that you do for us every day. We pray that you'd be blessed as we uh, uh, just share from your word, uh, that your word would go forth in power, you, Sean, and myself, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
That is true. All right. Well, starting us off as we're waiting for the questions to come on in. Yeah. Um, seems um. to be a interesting <laughs> slogan that's crossing uh, the mouths of people, not only who should know better, but are trained not to. Uh, the statement, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, and on that goes. Obviously, we'd expect this from Muslims. We'd expect this from socialists. We'd expect this from people who have a vested interest in the annihilation of Israel, or at least the persecution of the Jewish people. But now it seems to be crossing the lips of Christian groups and those who hold to Reformed theology. Um, Dr. Michael Brown, who himself is a Messianic Jew, uh, provided some interesting insights to that topic and we figure yeah. why not start with that yeah absolutely so um, you can always go uh, and Google dr. Michael Brown um, and being a messianic uh, Jew uh, what that means if you if you're not sure what we're talking about is um, it's a person who has uh, a Jewish ethnic background um, so they're ethnically a Jewish person but yet they believe in Jesus as the Messiah um, of Israel. So uh, he has written, uh, and it was posted on All Israel News, and you could always go there. Pastor Scott's always talking about All Israel News, so you might want to check out that website and uh, get your news from there on kind of the current events that are going on right now in the Gaza area or just with Israel in general. But this, this article, the title is A Question for Those Who Chant Palestine Must Be Free. And I found this really fascinating because this is something that uh, is very popular in our in our day. Uh, this kind of idea of uh, free Palestine. And he says, "I have an honest question for all those who chant or who affirm the words, quote, Palestine must be free, unquote, or more fully, quote, from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free, unquote." My question is simply this. Where would you like the 7 million Jews currently living in Israel, or Palestine in your words, to go? What is your plan? As many have pointed out, this chant is not a call for a two-state solution. It is a call for the obliteration of Israel. Better to chant, we are full of hate, no more Jewish state. Why not spell it out? Why not be honest? So that's how he starts off his article, which I'm sure... Uh, sent a lot of uh, uh, shockwaves, and a lot of people probably commented on that. Um, you know, it's interesting, and the reason why I bring this up is because one of the things Jesus, you know, talked about is that the love of many would grow cold. Mm -hmm. And um, and also there's other passages that discuss kind of this idea of um, what we do to Israel matters. You know, I think of that passage where he says, uh, if you do this to one of the least of my brethren, you do it to me. And um, that idea of, you know, looking at the Jewish people and having uh, compassion and understanding uh, for them, it seems to be lost in our day. Um, and it, it's hard for me to believe because I, me growing up, Sean, Hitler was like a really bad dude. And you understood why. Yeah, and you understood why. And it was, it, it, it was very clear in my youth that, you know, you didn't want to be like Hitler. You didn't want to go down that road, you know. You didn't want to be someone who um, had anti-Semitism, um, and yet this seems to be a theme throughout the entire Bible. Um, this kind of anti-Semitic 
idea. So he's commenting on this that like a lot of people that are saying free Palestine are just not really being honest about what they're really saying in that kind of chant or that kind of slogan. Um, and that is, uh, and, and just so you know, that's what slogans are there to do. They're there to, um, they're, if a good slogan, if it's a good slogan, you can't critique it because if you critique it, you're seen as a ignoramus or someone that's kind of out to lunch. But if you criticize a bad slogan, then you're caught up in the hysteria and manipulation that the slogan's trying to summarize. Yeah. And again, like the TikTok generation is blighted to experience, there's a difference between somebody who's trying to summarize a lot of truth in a short amount of time, and there's another person who's just literally skipping over information in order to put out a verifiably false statement. Mm -hmm. But if you dare challenge that, then just like with the complicated issue at hand, you'll be assumed to be against everything that's in the conversation. So when people, for instance, are talking about the deaths that are taking place among the Palestinian people, then they're looking at innocent lives being taken. They're looking at people basically being caught in the crossfire in sections of war and basically mudding up the issue of all the other factors that are involved because all you're being told is freedom. You like freedom, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Are you against freedom? And that's all that the conversation allows. <laughs> when you right. object to it and go, wait a minute, Palestine's not a thing. That wasn't actually why these people groups were trying to not just drive out Israel, but drive them, according to their charter, into the ocean. And mm. if you note, the probability there isn't to take them to a nice beach day. The intention is for them to drown, to be destroyed. And when we're looking at all of the, and you said it, the anti-Semitism that's brought up into this, there isn't a distinction that's being made, unless it's in larger contexts, which are never entertained in these sort of circles, internet circles, that, oh, we're, we're just emphasizing the political activists, what we'll call Zionists, that are specifically targeting civilians, which they aren't, and are uh, deliberately discriminating against the Palestinian people on the basis of ethnicity or religion in order to make sure that everyone, Hebrew or not, has a fair standing anywhere on the globe, let alone a state the size of New Jersey that we call the country of Israel. And on it goes. But then you take a step forward and ask the question, okay, so if that's what you care about, why is it that when the shoe's on the other foot, when Palestine is not given regard for human life, but literally staging rocket platforms and military compounds inside of hospitals and schools, when Israel shoots back and they say, oh, they bombed their school, it's a propaganda stunt. They say, I don't care about whether or not this Jewish Zionist propaganda is put forward. Not my sentiment, by the way, just the statement. I care about the fact Israel shot up a school. That's what they want. When they stage photo shoots and literally have people moving too early <laughs> in these body bags in order to get photo ops and so forth, and they say, look at what the Hebrews did. We point out it's false. They move on to the next topics and never discussed again. When they post, and this has happened, photographs of little children that were killed in Israeli airstrikes. And it turns out that they just selected them from an Instagram app. And the mother of the daughter who posted the picture is saying, my daughter's not killed and she doesn't even live in Israel or Jordan or Lebanon. She lives in the United States. 
it's passed over and of course Israel continues to be demonized on the next topic. The point of emphasis is what? That this objection isn't rational. Borderline demonic, not just because reason has nothing to do with it, but it's specifically perpetrating a doctrine that is in opposition to the truth of God, that these are his people, that he has special purposes for them, that he has done wonderful things through them, which we can all agree on, and yet people who should have the most love for Israel, the ones through whom the promises came, mm -hmm. according to the book of Romans chapter 2, the one through whom the Messiah entered this world, the one by whom we know salvation, are being cursed and degraded mm. at every opportunity. We mm. don't associate that with a heart that's just here for the facts. We're here seeing that and saying, you're sharing the heart of Satan. And so we would call this demonic. Michael Brown, of course, has a vested ethnic interest. Yeah, in totally. But yep. you and I would also disagree with this, not just because it's irrational, but it's against scripture. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, for those that are out there, though, you know, that go, man, you guys talk a lot about this stuff, and it's because the Bible, uh, you know, talks a lot about Israel. Um, and uh, for, I think, a lot of people that attend church uh, that have never read through the Bible, they might be shocked by that. Um, but the, and, you know, I, I remember reading the Bible at 17 and, you know, thinking, wow, this book is about uh the hebrews <laughs> that's what this book's about their history but let me read to you zechariah chapter 12 this is the word of the lord concerning israel the lord who stretches out the heavens who lays the foundation of the earth and who forms the spirit of man within him declares i am going to make jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling interesting all the surrounding people um, around Jerusalem or are going to be reeling at some point. It says Judah will be besieged as, a, as well as Jerusalem. So it talks about a war that goes against Israel. And on that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem a, an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. Very radical prophecy you see in Zechariah that uh, Jerusalem um, and Israel will uh, be uh, in war once again. And um, all it says all the nations, all the nations will try to uh, come against her. Uh, and so we look at today's kind of prophetic scenario and we go, you know, it's interesting. There's, a, there's entire, uh, an entire theology in, in a religion that is literally just against the Jews. It's just fascinating. You know, Hitler had a uh, uh, maybe a secular uh, kind of way of approach, a philosophical approach to exterminate the Jews. Um, yet, yet there's a religion out there that has kind of a, an interesting twist to it where it really has a religious uh, philosophical perspective, or, or I shouldn't say philosophical, just a religious perspective of getting rid of the Jewish people. Yeah, for and, those of you who've seen some of the protests, you may be familiar with the chant, Kaibar, Kaibar, O Jews, the armies of Muhammad will return. They say it in Arabic, but that's the reference. Uh, the quotation is from the Hadith and Sunnah literature, Hadith meaning the saying, Sunnah meaning the biography, literally the way to water, but it's the uh, 
basically the gospel according to Muhammad. Yeah. How he lived out his life as the perfect man. And since the Quran notes that if we don't submit to all of his teachings, all of his examples, all of his saints, that we are in rebellion, we're hypocrites, and under the same death penalty as Christians, Jews, and polytheists. So the point of emphasis for this Jew hatred is the idea that when Muhammad was portraying himself as the prophet of the uh, pagan god Dushara, the argument that he had to an audience that was completely ignorant of what Christians and Jews had to say was that he was one of the prophets like Moses, like Jesus, who he referred to as Esau, interestingly enough, because he didn't bother to look up. It was actually a slur towards Jesus referencing Esau. When the credibility of Islam was built up, the Quran verses were codified, meaning put into writing, quote-unquote, it was memorized, they were building up their doctrine in Muhammad basically saying over and over and over again, I'm with the Christians and Jews, you listen to the Christians and Jews, and they're going to affirm me, I'm a prophet like the Christians and Jews, you just you check out their scriptures, which of course none of them did, then you're going to know that I'm a true prophet. And then when he finally got exiled in what was called the Hijra to Yathrib, which is called Medina today, he was basically put in a position of arbitration between the Jews and the people who were living in that city. And when they started hearing his claims about theology, they were like, you're nuts. We're, we're, you're not, first of all, you're from the line of Ishmael. You're not a Hebrew. Secondly, none of your prophecies are prophecies. You're just making claims about how you're going to beat people up someday. Yeah. And you're not actually making any divine miracles or anything. And Muhammad's like, well, I'll wait. We'll see if my God can do it. And, of course, when he finally got tired of this after a period of about 10 years, he finally was able to change Islam's message to be motivated by sex, violence, and robbery, and, of course, silencing people who criticized him, specifically the Jews. So the universal hatred in Islam that's built into the religion is based on not only a false presumption that the Jews would be on his side, but a infantile reaction to the fact that when he finally was exposed as a fraud, he had enough thugs on his side to enforce it rather than to own up and say, I guess I'm not a prophet, I got some spiritual problems here. Maybe that demon in the cave was uh, trying to choke me for other than reasons to give me Surah 96, but I digress. Yeah, and just so people know that in, in Islam you have three main uh, um, books. Categories. Categories, right? Yeah. You have the Quran. The recitation that's supposedly the divine revelation from Allah, which doesn't actually make the majority of Islamic doctrines just rambling poetry. But the Hadith. word yeah, the word of that is final. The Hadith literature is a series of volumes of books. Whether you're Sunni or Shia, it will depend. But the majority of Muslims in the world today, uh, Sunnis, are going to adhere to three main Hadith sources, Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, and others. But the um, Sunnah, the biographies, the earliest one we have is what's called the Sunnah of Ibn Ishaq, which we don't have, by the way. It's a condensed version uh, written by Ibn Isham, his student, who censored it, by the way, from things he didn't like. It's also worth noting Sahih bukhari was also heavily censored because of all the hadiths, the sayings of Muhammad. Mm -hmm. They had 700 or 600,000 compiled, but he condensed it down to 7,000, which if you're doing the math is just over 1%. 
And what's interesting as well is 4,000 of those hadiths in Bukhari alone are repeats. Hmm. So it's not as stable a religion as they'd like to think, but that's the idea. And then there's the Sira. Yeah, the Sira, of course, the commentaries uh, that provides insight to the incomprehensibility of the Quran, but they can throw that out if, they, if it comes to a conclusion they don't like in public. Mm. And that's another problem, is you're allowed to lie if it protects the Islamic community that's in the Quran. So you never really know what you're talking to or who you're talking to. The point of emphasis is, if you're going to talk to someone about this, show your sources. But we're speaking to other Christians. And when this topic of Jew hatred comes up, we can again go to the prophecies of Jeremiah where it notes, if I've made my covenant with the sun and moon, and they do not come up. So my covenants with my people, Israel, are irrevocable. We can talk about the prophecies of Isaiah that say the same thing. We can go to Romans chapter 11 and noting, have they fallen away? That they should. Destroyed? Yeah. Certainly not. And on and on it goes. We're hmm. summarizing again for the sake of doing this off the cuff, but that's the point that we need to make, is when these slogans come around, First of all, words mean things, but in any meaningful engagement, any meaningful conversation, dialogue needs to start and end with good questions. What do you mean by that? If they're citing back slogans and a desire for freedom, but the freedom involves the extermination of an ethnic group for being ethnic, or if you read Surah 929 of the Quran, religious, if you say things that the Jews never actually said that Ezra is the son of Allah, therefore we're in a perpetual state of war against them, we got a problem. And mm. also people who come to their defense are also the problem in the same way that, as you stated, Nazi sympathizers would have been in the heat of World War II. We're seeing this around the globe, hundreds of thousands of people rallying. There, there was an incident in Russia where uh, a flight from Tel Aviv landed and a mob gathered hunting for Jews to kill yeah. under the rumor that they may have been on that flight. And that's just mm. one example. We can talk about the, the thousands of people in the UK. We can talk about the events here in the United States, our representatives trying to put forward this propaganda. But as we're going to take the time to go out to the questions, yeah. this needs to be addressed seriously. Because as you referenced in Matthew 24, Jesus will judge the nations on the basis of how they were treating his people. And if we take the words of our Lord seriously, which, again, we call him Lord, we call ourselves Christians, we do, we need to recognize anti-Semitism is, in fact, from the heart of Satan. Not just anti-Semitism, but anti-Judaism is from the heart of Satan. And that every single argument that is put in favor of these positions is either not going to hold up weight when put even under cursory scrutiny, meaning just simple questions, even more importantly, that we need to know the reasons why we love everybody, that we desire salvation even for the Muslims that share Muhammad's of murderous rage do. towards the yeah. Jewish people. And if the truth is going to stand out, we don't have to be afraid of these conversations because sometimes the best way to end them is to go, you know, that's terrible. Can I look that up and get back to you? searching for my phone here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I look that up and get back to you? It's as simple as that because mm -hmm. oftentimes... As long as uh, your source isn't a public news station, you're going to find that the thousands dead at the hospital uh, being bombed by Israel was actually a misfired rocket from Islamic Jihad. Yeah, I just find it so ironic that, like I, we read in Zechariah 12, that, you know, the Bible says that in the end people will be, um, you know, again, once again, haters of Israel and haters of the Hebrew people. 
And, you know, again, when I was growing up, people would be, uh, people were absolutely like, no way would I be anti-Semitic. No way would I uh, be on the side of Hitler. No way would, I mean, that would be like impossible in people's minds to think that, um, you know, my generation, Generation X would be, you know, uh, pro-Hitler. There's no way we... We, we were like we thought no way that would happen and yet i'm i'm barely a little over 50 years old i'm not even that old um you know and it's and it blows my mind that my generation and the generation the younger generation that's in college um but uh my generation of professors and etc cetera, etc cetera, have absolutely sided with the thing that they hated and it reminds me of a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche, you know, that talks about, you know, beware uh, lest you become the monster, you know. Yeah, take heed when you fight the beast, lest you become him. That's right, that you become the beast, you become the monster. And by the way, Nietzsche was the guy who inspired Hitler, just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know what? It's just unbelievable, right? It's like you you become what you hate, and uh, that is the that is the issue the bible talks about of why we need saving because there's something desperately wrong with us human beings um and uh right now you can see it uh pretty loud and clear yeah so if you have or have heard about these sort of arguments objections or accusations towards the idea of israel being among the quote-unquote people of god anymore um perhaps replacement theology arguments, perhaps even just claims about things in the news, we'd be happy to address them on the broadcast because A, the research isn't that hard, we could probably do it on the fly, B, these sort of objections aren't that original, we've probably heard them for three weeks now, but the third is most important, is that this is pivotal in understanding, not just that we love Jesus, but that we regard his people as still having a purpose before God, and that as Scripture states in Genesis 12 and verse 3 that if we want to be blessed, we want to bless Israel, the descendants anointed, descendants of Abraham. If we want to be cursed, well, I don't even need to keep reading. I don't want to be cursed. So that's the point. If you have questions about that topic, we'd be happy to do so. Anything more on that? Just go to, to All questions? Israel News. Check out that, uh, that article, that uh, column by Dr. Michael Brown on uh, the question of those who chant Palestine must be free. Check it out. Read it. And uh, it's a pretty eye-opening article, for sure. Yeah, brings up some good questions. Uh, here's our first question for the evening. Uh, this is from Bo, not B-E-A-U, but B-O-E. Uh, oh, will cool. Christians ever face persecution in the United States? Um, obviously, we have been blessed to live in a society that doesn't know the same kind of persecution like those in Europe, Africa, Asia, and, well, yeah, I pretty much covered the rest of the planet. But when we start to see these things take place, when we see, you know, the temperature kind of, uh, I guess, declining spiritually in our midst, people wonder where that's headed, and obviously with their own well-being in mind. Uh, are we given any promises in Scripture that don't just mention the United States, but any special circumstance that will never experience persecution from other Christians as well as from the government? Um, no one gets a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, uh, so I'm looking at the book of Second Timothy right now, chapter 3, and I'm going to go to verse 12. 
in that section. Um, just bear with me for a second. Um, this is uh, Paul's charge to Timothy, and starting at verse 10, you, however, know about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So it's interesting that Paul would say that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's interesting, King David in the book of Psalms, in the Psalms, uh, a lot of his songs, because that's what the Psalms are, they're songs, man, they're his music, uh, not just David's, but it's the, the priest music um, written by some of the priestly families. And, uh, but a lot of them have this theme of that, uh, you know, they're being persecuted, even by close friends uh, that are persecuting them. I think I was in the uh, Psalm um, 70 and 71 today in my morning devotion, and David talks about him being ridiculed for just worshiping God, you know, going to the temple, uh, seeking the Lord, praising God, you know, having God's uh, songs on his mouth kind of thing, and, and people making fun of him and joking with him. And, and sometimes that's how persecution looks in the United States. It might look like, oh, you're just a fool, uh, you're just lame, you know, that kind of thing. And I certainly... Um, delved that out to people like when I was younger. So when I was a secular atheist, you know, I certainly would cuss at Christians and, you know, make them feel stupid and try to humiliate them or shame them um, because I didn't really have a coherent argument against what they were saying. So I just went to the, uh, what's a logical fallacy of just kind of, if you can't win an argument, you just ridicule them <laughs> and try to shame them as much as you can. And sometimes that's how persecution looks like in the United States. Uh, you know, will, will we go through worse persecution? Um, um, I, am, I imagine so. I, I imagine that the way the direction of, uh, you know, I, I tend to look at the colleges and, um, you know, kind of measure future generations of leadership by how the colleges are. And, and I don't see anywhere where our college campuses are changing, meaning our college campuses have become very much pro-totalitarianism. We saw that through the pandemic. Um, they've become very um, um, uh, places where incredible hate um, is at, and there's an incredible agenda um, within the college campuses, and uh, this is where massive propaganda and worldviews get pushed. And so when you're teaching the youth, um, it's just a matter of time before the youth grow up and they become in, uh, they become politicians or things like that. And, um, and so what we're seeing is already a lot of policy in the United States that is very against um, the Bible in general. It's not pro-Bible policy. It would, it would be policies that really go directly against 
uh, and that puts Christians in a predicament, you know, whether we are going to obey the Bible or whether we follow policies. Um, and so I can't imagine that getting better for us um, unless there's some really radical change, I, I believe, in the universities uh, themselves. But even with the current things going on right now with the war in Israel and the interesting um, uh, protest happening on college campuses against Israel, it, it doesn't give me much hope in uh, how uh, the universities are doing. And so um, I, uh, I, I would see it probably just getting worse and worse. So I, I, I tend to think that before the rapture, we're just going to see things progressively get worse in this country um, as far uh, as, far as um, you know, persecution on Christians or churches go. We see churches in lawsuits today over issues of not shutting down in the pandemic. I mean, so we see some pretty amazing things that I think if even 10 years ago, you said like, hey, like the churches are gonna be sued or they're gonna have fee, you know, fines, million dollar fines because they didn't shut down. Um, you know, they, they you know, were told by the government that they couldn't open up. People couldn't worship God. I think we would have been pretty shocked by that 10 years ago, but that's what happened, you know? And, um, and uh, not a lot of people complained um, about it. You would think the whole nation might be in an uproar, like, wait, time out. You can go to church, man. Like, why? Freedom of assembly. Yeah, like, why can't you go to church? You'd think the whole country would have been like that, but nope. Nope, Gestapo. Yeah. Now the, and, and again, it always falls in line with the follow-up question. Okay, well, if it's not a if, but when. We're not given any promises against it, and we're even given some warnings for it. Mm-hmm. We obviously aren't going to be put in the same situations as every person on the planet, and it can be pretty, like you said, seasonal with the pandemic. That was a definite move nationally. Yeah. But there's also individual things locally. You don't have to be sued by the government to shut down. You can be targeted by your local hedonist branch who say, we want to get married, sue you into oblivion, and at least dog you down with legal fees until it gets thrown out in court, if that, depending on your state. We can talk about individual issues where, say, you're at a campus, they find out you have a Bible, and the events in Israel take place, you're cited out as a Jew lover and get beaten up with the rest of them, like what's been happening on public universities and campuses. On it goes. Mm. But the point is, what can we do to prepare for it? And believe it or not, the answer is to live the Christian life. Because the same, if you want to use the term muscles, the same kind of decisions to live for God in the face of difficulty, opposition, or what seems to be a simple decision to alleviate the pressure, is the same muscle in enduring persecution as it would be in enduring temptation, in making a priority for personal Bible study and prayer. To choose God, regardless of how you feel, is the same kind of decision-making you can train for when and if those situations come. Yeah, and I, and I could say that it's, you know, this is really important, what Sean's saying, is to really make those right decisions, because a lot of times when, when hate comes at you, you want to respond with hate. Uh, I've been jumped twice in my life, um, and I'm, I'm from Southern California. Uh, one of them, um, I, I, I shouldn't have said something, 
uh, it's not like I provoked getting jumped. I, I just, I didn't even know. I mean, that's what getting jumped is. It means you get beat up by a bunch of people and you don't even know you're going to get beat up by a bunch of people. For those but, who don't speak California. Yeah, yeah, totally. But, um, you know, to, to know that that's happening on college campuses because uh, of your, your love for the Jewish people, your belief maybe in the Bible, which is the history of the Jews, um, and uh, or because of your ethnic background of being a Hebrew, uh, really saddens me. But I, but I know how you feel because when you get hit and you get beat and you're getting kicked or, or things like that, your adrenaline gets going and and the you know it's scary. I remember uh, after uh, the first time I got jumped, um, I just wanted to get a gun and uh, I was so fearful and so scared and. Uh, so upset about the whole thing. I, I just thought, man, I got to go get a gun and come back here and blow these people away. And I know that sounds kind of it, it radical, but it is. And, and it's at that point, it feels like war, I guess. I've never been at war, but it feels like that. It feels so out of control. And that, that's you know? the emphasis. You don't want to be in that position of no. complete vulnerability and at the hands of someone who doesn't have your best interest no. in mind. No. But that's the key. And, and we'll, we'll re finish with this as we move on to the next question. Yeah. But note this cluster of verses that Jesus puts in the same, essentially, literary format and how they all tie into the same kind of thing we ought to be doing as Christians. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is Matthew 5 and verse 3. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, strength under control, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, a right relationship with God, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, before I get to verse 10, what has been laid down up until this point? All things that kind of seem counterintuitive. <laughs> that if you yeah. want to be strong, you want to conquer, you don't keep your strength under control, you unleash it. Right. right? You don't Dominate. want to rejoice by mourning. You don't want to be put in a position where you're poor in spirit. You want to be abundant in spirit. That's right. Yet Jesus associates all of these things as essentially what we call a slingshot effect. You pull back to propel you forward. Now, note how this kingdom turns on its head continues with a reward system. And this is the motivation. Blessed are those who are persecuted for a right relationship with God, for righteousness sake, for theirs is present tense, the kingdom of heaven. Mm. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say, sorry to those who think that physical persecution is the only form biblically recognized, even derision, right? All evil things against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if you're finding yourself being put in a position where you're not in control, something we don't want to be in. You find yourself in a position where I tried to do the right thing and it was treated as evil. I, I'm seeing firsthand what Isaiah meant when he said, woe to those, Moses said it first in Deuteronomy 25, but woe to those who call evil good and good evil, right? All of this being built around a sense of desperation, something that you don't think you're going to be able to handle mentally and say what? I'm in good company. I have a reward waiting. That's what makes 
enduring temptation worth it. Yeah. That is what makes doing the right thing when it costs you something worth it. That is the same kind of thing that we have the opportunity to do in small ways every single day. So when it comes to the concepts of persecution, and, and trust me, I've counted the cost. And you study Islam, you attract some very interesting people with very interesting promises for you. Hmm. The only thing that's going to give us any confidence is that we fall back instead on the promises that have been made to us. So are we exempt from persecution? No one has been given that promise. Are we in a land that is promised freedom from persecution? Well, first of all, we're seeing it. Secondly, we have seen it. But third, we're not going to be given that promise. So if that then comes to you or that idea of, well, how will I be able to handle it? He'll equip you as he sees fit. Just understand the small things today make a big difference tomorrow. Let mm. us know if that helps you out, Bo. Yeah, that's great. All right. Uh, another question here from Talon, who wants to know, how do you battle stagnation in your walk with God? For those who don't have a thesaurus handy, the idea of, you know, there's growth and there's backsliding. There's no real third step. So kind of wanting to go on autopilot, neutral, the mindset of, you know, I just I don't want to be proactive today. I'll just kind of do what I've always done. Not wanting to grow. How do we fight that? Um, you, sh you show up. <laughs> so how you fight that is do not forsake the assembling of yourselves as it says in the book of Hebrews. What chapter is that? Chapter 12, is it, of Hebrews? 12 or 13. 12 or 13, yeah. Don't forsake the assembling. You, you know, it's very easy when you start feeling uh, kind of like you're slowing down to start isolating yourself. And the, the Proverbs tell us, uh, somewhere in the Proverbs, it tells us that a fool isolates himself. I know that one by memory, Proverbs 18.1. Uh, the Hebrews passage is Hebrews 10.25. Okay, 10.25 and Proverbs 18.1 .1 that says, hey, the, the foolish person isolates. And the thing is, is um, when you, when you uh, kind of feel a little dry, a lot of times um, what you need is grace. But grace, the grace of God is seen in the collective gifts within the body of Christ. And I get this from, I don't pull this out of my hat, I'm getting this from the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10. It says, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. Okay, so a lot of people have gifts to give me but in order for that to happen and this is seen as god's grace by the way these gifts these particular gifts maybe it's encouragement right someone comes up to you and says hey you know i i sense you're a little down or you know you might share with someone that you're a little down but anyway that person now prays for you um, it might be that you go into the body of christ and you serve you or, you know find one of the uh, you know, pastors or um, administrators or assistants, and you say, hey, how can I help out? And, um, and you just get out of yourself, and you start serving, and you find that God's grace meets you right there. Um, you might, you know, go to the fellowship, and you pray for someone, and you find encouragement and perspective as you talk to that person who maybe is elderly or terminal, terminally sick, and that perspective that you now gain is a grace from God, 
and you go, wow, and you get out of your own, uh, if you will, selfishness, your own yuck, your own, you know, constantly looking at yourself. Um, uh, again, when you isolate yourself, you're constantly in yourself, and that's not a great place to be. Um, uh, you, you, you want to have the grace of God come into your life, and how has it come? Through others. Each one has received a grace of God. They are to serve others, faithfully administering those gifts. So if you don't want to fall into this, the, the, the issue that you're talking about, then don't isolate yourself. You know, get into the fellowship that you're at and continue to show up. Continue to go and you will grow. But you got to go. All right. Let us know if that helps. Uh, Yari wants to know about the fourth man in the furnace. This is a reference to the book of Daniel, by the way. Uh, was it an angel or a theophany of Jesus Christ? We'll explain what that means in a second. He also wants to know about Melchizedek, if that was Jesus or an angel or something else. Uh, thank you for the question, Yari. Um, yeah, it's uh, definitely an interesting conversation people have had for a while. Uh, when we want to know the significance of that, uh, first of all, start with the dictionary. What does theophany mean? It means uh, appearance of God before the time of the incarnation, meaning that when Jesus was born of a virgin, he adopted human nature to himself as a part of himself fundamentally as God the Son, where he remains eternally the God-man. Now, if Jesus then remains human and will do so forever, still as God, but a unique entity as God and man by nature. And that's what the ascension's all about. Yeah. Um, we're given an example of in history, in fact, dozens of examples in history of God appearing as a man simply because that's what he decided to do. It was a, a temporary arrangement, but one that was more for visual aid, not necessarily a uh, salvific one. But uh, in Daniel chapter 3, the observation that Nebuchadnezzar made was that of a pagan. So if we're going to go purely off of his perspective, then we might uh, end up missing some points. But note the surrounding situation, and I think that we'd have no reason to question his conclusion. Uh, first of all, this is in verse 24 of Daniel 3. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Verse 25 says, Look, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, already we see that Nebuchadnezzar is coming at this from the perspective of Hagen. He's been exposed to the Jewish scriptures. His culture has been exposed to the Jewish people and their God's involvement with them. And of course, he's uh, born witness to a prophecy. So in the previous chapter, he has some impression of that. But I don't think he would have used this kind of term deliberately. And if you go into, say, look up on Bible Hub, the original Aramaic that this was put into, the language of Babylon, uh, he just references it in the vaguest terms gods. possible. He looks like one of the gods. But yep. the translation's deliberate. Why? Because the translators understand what he's observing is that. Now, are there clear examples of Jesus appearing in the Old Testament? And certainly there are. The ones that we generally like to go to are God's appearance 
directly to Moses, where the angel of the Lord appears in the bush and says, Moses, Moses, he says, here I am. He says, take the shoes off your feet, the ground which you're standing are holy. He says, who's speaking? He says, I am the God of your ancestors. Not I speak on behalf of, I am the God of your ancestors. We go later in the book of Exodus and in Numbers, the angel of its presence is described as having his name in him and on it goes. We can go to the time of the judges where Samson's parents are mm -hmm. exposed to the angel of the Lord and the husband rightly concludes, we are going to die. We've we seen God. God. Yeah. So when someone's directly identified as God, we know this angel is what he's doing. He's a messenger. That's what the word means. But he's not just a created heavenly being. He's the creator coming as a messenger. He's allowed to do that. So if that's then the situation, what do we conclude from Nebuchadnezzar's observation? Well, like I said, the surrounding context. We can go forward and we can go backward. Let's start with forward. In verse 16, we read in verse 25 Nebuchadnezzar's observation. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered instead of the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you on this matter. That is an answer to his threat. Because he says what? If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand. So if we go just off the plain presentation of this, what Nebuchadnezzar is being shown is that our God is able to deliver us. Now, could that be done through an emissary? Potentially, but is there any suggestion apart from this? And apart from what Daniel deliberately recorded, that Nebuchadnezzar saw something that was a divine being, not a spiritual being, a divine being. He concluded this was something that was deified or God-worthy. We go afterwards into this and note yeah, what verse his... Yeah, 28. Well, yeah, well, we can start there. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his angel, and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Now note, not them... He doesn't make a distinction. He rightly identifies the angel as one and the same. But note at the end of verse 29, where he notes, no other God can deliver like this. So in the sense of what's happening with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I think there's good reason, not great. I, I wouldn't have a conversation about this, for instance, with the Jehovah's Witness who would deny that Jesus is the Jehovah God. But it is a good example of it because the surrounding sense doesn't give you any other distinction beyond the fact that this entity is, in fact, God acting. Now, could it be? That's why I say good and not great. But we want better evidence. We'd go to places like Judges or Exodus. Now, Melchizedek, that's a whole other ballpark. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking to people, and note, uh, fellow Christians <laughs> can't disagree on this. Uh, people usually have good questions about whether or not he was a man, whether or not he was God, <laughs> whether he was an appearance of Jesus, or even a heavenly entity. Um, what are the positions for that, Bo, if you can give us a summary, and I'll mention some against. Wait, what was the question? Is Melchizedek Jesus pre-incarnate? Oh, okay. Well, is Melchizedek Jesus? Some There's a couple views on that. Yeah. Right. What would be the positions for it? Yeah, well, the positions for it is because he doesn't have mother, father, genealogy, anything like that. It talks about him being this kind of very mystery guy. And no end of days. Yeah, You're no referencing end of days. the book of Hebrews. Yeah. So some would say that means he's eternal. 
what else would suggest that? He's described as greater than who? Um, greater than Abraham. That's that's up there. Yeah. Uh, he paid tithes to him. Yep. Who do you pay tithes yeah. to? You pay them to God. He was a priest and a king. Which is something only um, Jesus would be. Yep. Uh, he he was over Jerusalem. So that, that'll be that. That's foreshadowing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So very very foreshadowing of Jesus. Uh, so I think all those reasons you would look at it and go, man, it certainly sounds like Jesus. But notice our wiggle words here. Like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the same passage is the one we uh, bring yeah. up as a case against it. It's a comparison. It, he is made like the Son of God. Um, it's a looser piece of evidence, but if you go to the book of Joshua, when they invade Jerusalem, they fight the Jebusites that are living there, and one of his descendants, Adonai Zedek, yeah. <laughs> is ruling, and he, of course, wasn't godly at this point. Yeah. We can grant that Gentile rulers and Gentile priests and Gentile prophets even are capable of having a relationship with God beyond that of Abraham. Yeah. We can look at Balaam. We could look at um, uh Uriah the Hittite, we can talk about uh, Naaman the Syrian, we can talk about that tribe that was mentioned in the book of Jeremiah that's name's escaping me at the moment. Yeah, the but, revelation of God is not just to Israel, it's not, it, it's, uh, it, it's to the world. Yeah. Um, God, God is using Israel. And Melchizedek could have, we'll keep that out there, just been another godly king, yeah. like Job, for instance. But when we're talking about this comparison, like the Daniel thing. It's a, it's a maybe, probably. Mm -hmm. Melchizedek's more in the realm of probably, probably not. Mm -hmm. So if we got like a scale for 10, you go to like Exodus 3 <laughs> and Judges, that, that's like a 10. That, yeah, that, the, that's as clear as day. You can is go it to, Jesus? Is it not? <laughs> yeah, you can go to Daniel. That I'd say that's an 8, a good 8, maybe yeah. 7 if you uh, want to be nitpicky. Yeah. Uh, the account for Melchizedek being a uh, theogony, the, an appearance of Jesus before the Incarnation, I'd give it a four, which is why I would hold a different position, and Bo, we're in agreement on that, and my father tomorrow can give his uh, spiel as well. But that's uh, how we'd handle those texts, Yari. I personally don't believe it, but if a Christian were to bring that up, I wouldn't divide fellowship over it, unless it was for reasons other than that that would, of course, be issues of inerrancy. Yeah, and what I find interesting, too, about, about the Daniel passage, and it's a great question, is that usually when an angel comes on the scene, it's pretty mighty, and it's pretty gnarly, where people kind of are so enamored by the angel that they even fall into idolatry with the angel. They bow down and worship it. And I do find it interesting that that's not the situation in Daniel chapter 3. The, uh, this messenger that's there in the fiery furnace is not such that it draws the attention of Nebuchadnezzar um, in this, um, like, such an amazing way where he's, like, bowing down to this figure in the uh, fiery furnace or, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are bowing down to it. They're really amazed at God. And uh, so I find that there a distinction there of why this maybe is Jesus and not an angel, because when an angel comes on the scene, it seems pretty radical, and people literally bow down to it and, and are fearful. Yeah. And that's another important thing. They do not accept worship. Go to Revelation 19 and Revelation 21 for examples for that. Um, another question here from Talon, who wants to know, uh, do you gradually unlock spiritual gifts, or are they unlocked or gifted like a lump sum? Uh, let me just deal with this as straightforwardly as possible. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. 
The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So we're not given quantity or sum, we're given purpose for the profit of all. For to one is given word of wisdom through the Spirit. Notice, not through our efforts. The Spirit gives these. He goes on to mention faith, gifts, healings, miracles, prophecies, tongues, interpretations of tongues. Verse 11 is key, though, to your question. One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So it's his prerogative, not just what gifts to give, when to give them, or how much to give to them. If you're given the Spirit, in a sense, you're given the lumped total sum of all spiritual gifts. In him is all the fullness of God. But if you ask, well, how do I know what my spiritual gift is? The Spirit will tell you. The Spirit will equip you. The Spirit will enable you as he sees fit. So when it comes to exercising, when it comes to restraining, when it comes to the proper use, or the specific way that God mm -hmm. has equipped you, it's all going to come down to whether or not the Spirit is calling you. It comes from him. Yes, and unlocking, the only thing I see about unlocking is that you have to be a part of the body of Christ because it's give, it's for us uh, together, right. you know, yeah. So that's the only thing I see. All right, well, there goes the music. So it looks like we ended that on a positive note. Uh, Bo, thank you for being <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, no, it was awesome. As well. And my uh, motorcycle gear. Yeah, and me, and <laughs> I'll let you guess. Uh, thank you all for being here with us as well on A Reason for Hope. This has been Sean Richards with Bo Aled on A Reason for Hope. God bless you. We'll see you all again tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.